Hi, this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Listener, it's very nice to have you join me on a small voice podcast. Thank you for listening. It's March. Uh, the weather here in London, frankly, sucks. It feels more like winter. You know, I say that because it's supposed to be spring, or at least that is supposed to be imminent, and it doesn't feel that way. So, you know, it would be nice to have a bit of sunshine. And I just say that because if you're in the southern hemisphere, you know, give it up, please. It's time we had some, and it's our turn with it. So, you know, that would be nice, and um, enjoy the winter if you're down there. This week on the podcast, we've got Jack Latham. Uh, Jack is sort of one of the uh, young guns of, of British photography, I could say. He uh, is 26, and I know he won't thank me for saying that. It's probably very annoying to have constant references to age when you're young, but it is relevant um, when you've got a lot done in a short period of time, which he has. You know, it's frankly impressive. Um, I think at one point in the interview, he, he says that he feels he started quite late in photography, which is hilarious. But uh, he has a couple of books to his name, or at least he's got one book to his name and one uh, imminent. Uh, the first was um, uh, called A Pink Flamingo. It is called A Pink Flamingo, still available, and um, was the result of his uh, road trip uh, along the Oregon Trail in the United States. Uh, that was partially funded by uh, his winning the Magnum Foundation Ideas Tap Award. And uh, the book that he is currently in the process of finishing up is called Sugar Paper Theories. Um, he's shooting that in Iceland. It's a very interesting project. And um, I think he's got one more trip to do. Uh, that, that book is due for publication in September of this year. And that was uh, funded by the Bar Tour Award, which he uh, won. And um, that's quite a substantial amount. It's twenty thousand pounds, but all of that money uh, is dedicated to the actual production of the book. None of that goes to the photographer um, to cover actual uh, shooting costs. But I, I guess it all helps. So um, please, uh, you know, do enjoy the interview with Jack. How did you get interested in photography? Um, great question. So I started. Um, my career in photography, I guess, is what you'd call it. Um, I think quite late. I, I I came out of high school still not knowing what on earth I wanted to do. Um, I got a couple of jobs in nightclubs, living the kind of nightclub life, as you do when you're in your late teens. And um, my parents could kind of see that my life was very quickly going nowhere. My family is quite a, an interesting, weird one. My godfather... Um, a gentleman called Peter Penfold was the amb- ambassador of Sierra Leone back during the Troubles. And so it was, my family has had a huge link to Sierra Leone over the years. Um, and one of those links was another photographer called Tim Hetherington, who through Sierra Leone met my godfather and became a very good and close family friend of my family. So when I was uh, 19 and kind of not going anywhere, my parents said, well, why don't you go with your godfather to Sierra Leone for kind of one last trip and then you get kind of a real job, wear a shirt and tie and turn up for nine and leave at five kind of job. So I kind of went along with it and thought, oh, I'd love to go to Sierra Leone. That's, I've never been before. Um, every member of my family had and I thought, well, I might as well. Um, I've got, kind of got nothing tying me down, if that makes sense. So my parents gave me a little bit of money just in case of emergencies when I was out there, like a hundred, two hundred pound max. Um, we get to Heathrow Airport and I just go straight to the duty free and I buy a camera. Forget, you know, the contingency plan. Um, and it was this really awful, you know, not that technical, but it, was, it wasn't great. And I, I proceeded to uh, photograph for the entire month of just what I was doing and I was out there with an NGO and uh, it was, yeah, amazing. And then I, I got back and then me and my godfather showed Tim and Tim was like, you've got an eye for it. Why don't you apply to Newport University? And again, maybe going back a little bit, I failed all my A-levels. I was not an academic 
kind of kind of chap. Um, and so the idea of going to university in my family was kind of written off very early, which is probably why I ended up in nightclubs. And um, and and so Tim, kind of God bless his soul, helped me write my application, gave me a letter of recommendation, did all of this stuff, and then I turned up for the interview. And my lecturer, um, I was I was also late applying as well, which didn't help. So I think this, I went to Sierra Leone in April, and then I started in Newport in September. So that's how short the time period was. Um, but when I when I went in for my interview, uh, my lecturer at the time, Clive Landon, had all of my A levels highlighted in pink, and. Uh, I just remember him saying, you don't have enough qualifications to be sat opposite me. And I was like, oh, fucking hell. Like, what am I going to do? Um, and he looked through my portfolio, which I have to be honest, looking back at it now, is it's terrible. You, have, you know, really contrast. You know, when you first start photography, you just want to kind of recreate your idols in a way. Yeah. But this was just stuff from just the Sierra Leone stuff. You hadn't really shot anything before that. No. And no, I, I got back from Sierra Leone and I went to parks and things like that. Right. I photographed the ducks and you know when you do when you first discover photography. Um and and he kind of went through it and then he kind of looked up at me and then he went back through it. And I'm not sure why he decided to give me a place. I have really no idea. Um, I think every time in my life I tried to do something artistic, my teachers weren't very encouraging. You know, mm. not to not to kind of pull on the heartstrings. There was this one time in when I was, I think, fifteen or sixteen. I was doing, you know, when you paint in school, your teacher puts something in the middle of the table and everyone has to paint it. Well, we had uh, a dying sunflower, and she looked at mine and picked it up and ripped it up in front of the class. And so I've always had this kind of like. Fuck art, art's wow. pretentious. This sucks. Well, those kind of experiences can actually, you know, have a, have a major impact for you know <laughs> the rest of your life. Yeah. In your case, you obviously uh, uh, transcended it. But yeah, you know that kind of um, it's it, it was for me. It was it was a huge chip on my shoulder. It was mm. kind of like oh well, you know, the one thing I did enjoy was that and drama. Yeah, I mean, you said because you're quite dyslexic, aren't you? Yeah, and so I mean. I also wasn't diagnosed dyslexic till I was in university. Mm. So this is another reason I think in school I was I wasn't a naughty boy, but I wasn't the best behaved and I just didn't do work because mm. you found it difficult. I found it difficult and I just I didn't feel supported or you know I I just felt the teachers were ticking boxes with me and I just thought oh well fuck it I'm not mm. I'm not going to play those games. And then when going so going back to the interview Clive Landon leaned over and said, I'm going to give you a chance. If you fuck up once, you're out. I'll be watching you like a hawk. Mm. And, you know, I'm not I'm not one to cry on the spot, but I burst into it. Because it was really, like, I kind of get a bit emotional talking about it now. The first time anyone in academia has ever given me the benefit of the doubt or a chance. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, I can still, I'm getting kind of, a bit nervous talking about it because just thinking back to that kind of young guy yeah. sitting opposite that table not knowing what's going to happen was just the biggest trip now. It's just unbelievable. I mean, that, that, that decision that he made has affected everything from there on. Yeah. And God knows what. If he'd said, look, <laughs> sorry, I can't let you in, man. <laughs> you know, go and do something else. You might have ended up, you know, well, maybe you wouldn't have become a photographer, that's for sure. No, so, guaranteed. but you really don't know what he saw. He obviously saw some potential. You never, you never asked him subsequently. I think he could, he could tell that. I mean, it was the only university I applied for, but he could tell that I was passionate about photography just because. Were you aware of the reputation of the course at that point? No, you, you had no idea. Tim and my mother had done some Google research, very like, and had spoken to Tim, and Tim had mentioned Newport. And it was the only university I applied for. And I think I was, if I remember right, I was 120 points. You need like these points mm. to get into university. And I was 120 short <laughs> to get in. And I managed to get in just on the merit of what I consider now awful portfolio. But I think... Yeah. And a recommendation from Tim, which I guess may have maybe, counted for some. No, but that, I, I, yeah, maybe that got me at the table. Mm. But yeah, 
I, I, I'm, actually, it may be even was the thing that swung, uh, swung it, but, but it was kind of an amazing kind of, and from the bottom heart, the thing that changed my life was that day. Mm. I, I actually remember running down to the canteen where my father was waiting because he was he drove me to Newport, and on the way there he said, "Well, being the realist he is, if you don't get it, what are you going to do? And if you don't get it, you're offered the foundation." And after you do the foundation, you can join the course. Anyway, I was oh, well, I'll just do the foundation. That's what I was expecting. So I remember running downstairs and finding my father and being like, I got it. Mm. And he went, you got the foundation? I went, no, I got the fucking course. <laughs> and that that was also, I think, another catalyst for why I'm so passionate about photography now is I'd never seen my father cry before. Right. Um, and I was, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't bad as a son, but I... I did, never did anything to make a relative like cry out of out pride. pride. Yeah. And that's a real kind of uh, amazing feeling and it's and it's just and it really humified my uh humified, is that the right word? Kind of made my father a human to me as opposed to this kind of I was just like fuck I've just made the person who I admire most in the world shed tears yeah. because of something I've and in a good way yeah, as yeah. opposed to the bad, bad way. So, so you kind of it, yeah, you'd had two, you know, you'd, you'd had um, two people really um, respond. I mean, the the guy who gave you the chance, and then you saw how proud your dad was. So he must have felt that the pressure was on to to kind of deliver, or at least to you know do do, do your best, as it were. Did you did you, so you took that warning seriously that if you fucked up, you'd be out. I, I still hear it now. Like it sounds silly, but it was really I've I've I I hit the ground running in that course, and I didn't. Not that I was doing well, I, I was doing terribly at the start, but I mean, in terms of I engaged with everything, I was first at every lecture, sat the front row. And, you know, I think in any kind of institution, you find like-minded people. So I think our group were, the we were all the same. So my housemate now who I live with was, we'd always be at the front taking notes. We'd have these uh, pastor evenings once a week where everyone would come around and put all of their prints on the wall and we'd all mm. critique um, yeah, so you really sort of got them. You, you kind of were determined to kind of really get the ring the most out of it, as it were, rather than just to sort of be a bit kind of disengaged with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to talk, not to talk too kind of, uh, not not to put too much sentimental value on it, but it was for the first time in my life I had a form of expression, mm. and I think kind of when when you kind of in that vulnerable age of being 16 and, and things that you enjoy are shot down in such a kind of cataclysmic, cataclysmic way. Yeah. You, you feel, you feel really voiceless. And so it was, I was just embracing it and it was, and I was able to communicate ideas and mm. I was looking at the world differently. It was amazing. But you were quite naive about photography itself and about photographers and, you know, did you, was that in some way an advantage though, that you, you were kind of free to just do your own thing without too many preconceived ideas? I rec I remember going to um, a Daniel Meadows and Peter Fraser talk in Cardiff Museum and one of my classmates was talking about Martin Parr, right? And I was like, who's Martin Parr? And I had two people laugh at me mm. for not knowing who that person was. I didn't, I, you know, I don't think I found it disengaging. It, it, I, I just, um, it, it just gave me more of an incentive. I was like, I need to know about yeah. what, what is this medium? I've literally just dunked my big toe in. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to investigate this more. And so I, I dedicated all of my free time to, to like, going through the back catalogues of every photographer anyone would mention. Mm. You became quite obsessive about it. Obsessive is maybe the wrong word, mm. but it it, um, it it gave me a purpose. Yeah, and and you know, I'm, I'm for the first time in life, I had a reason to be doing stuff. I had a reason to learn, and something which school had completely failed me. I I I got taught the the joy of learning about things, mm -hmm. and that for me was like wow, like, and I can see what people. And admittedly, in my first year at least, I wasn't too fast on the more conceptual photographers but you know i think everyone goes through that phase yeah um but it was just it was just amazing and i was just trying to absorb as much of it as possible so was it more kind of documentary guys who who lit you up mainly yeah i wanted to be tim like yeah um my first my first project i did so the first thing they they 
one of the first projects they give you in Newport is the portrait assignment. So I thought, well, well what am I going to do for this? I want to be like Tim. I want to be a war photographer. So I moved in with this guy in Birmingham who was kind of an ex-heroin addict, clown, an actual clown, um, that lived in the roughest area. And I was like, oh, I'm going to document. And I came back to it feeling horrible. You know, my first major project, I was like, God, I've just exploited someone. So it's a really kind of sobering feeling of learning that as the first thing as well. I've, I feel his helped me in terms of my guiding what my ethics is today. Mm. Um, but also learning about the negative effects of photography. I was like, well, the reason Tim does what he does so well is because he has morals and he doesn't make poverty porn or, you know, he doesn't exploit people. And, and so I was like, oh, God, I failed to be Tim. And so my next project I did was like a multimedia piece on uh, the visually impaired, kind of giving giving their voices to their pictures. And then I was like, oh, I failed to be Tim again. And um, and then I, I kind of started to realise that it's almost my failure to be Tim is what's made me unique, you know, in a, in a really interesting way. Kind of my inability to do what that man did mm. with a camera and my failure has brought me to a new place of a way which I've kind of found my own voice. And mm. I think that's that, that was the turning point when I accepted that. That you weren't going to, that, you know, only Tim could be Tim and uh, you had to be you. Yeah. I mean, his, his death had a profound effect, weirdly, on my work more than anything. It was, that was when I started photographing conceptually mm. about broader ideas. It's because I was really struggling to understand his death. Mm. Um, uh, the, the man, the man was my lifeline and and the biggest inspiration. Um, I'm part of the Tim Hetherington Trust now. He, you know, I dedicate a huge amount of time, my time to to promoting stuff that the trust is doing and and his legacy and whatnot. But it's when when he died, I didn't want to be a war photographer anymore. Mm. You know, I I picked up a wooden camera and I walked into the woods and I started photographing con conceptually. And it, that, in a weird way, was the thing that uh, stopped me trying to beat him yeah. was his death. And it's a really weird thing to say. But it's, um, yeah. 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 And then you, that took you sort of down a slightly different path. Um, and so you, I guess that, that led you to your first um, big piece of work, which then became the book, Pink Flamingo. So I think you were still at college when you began that project. Is that right? Yeah. So I did. I did a couple of things. I moved back in with my parents, who are based in Cardiff, um, and then I applied for an academic enhancement bursary. And so a lot of my money came from the academic enhancement bursary, and which paid for the flights. A bit of my money paid for the car, and then I got a credit card to pay for the rest of it. Right. And it was really meant to be like, well, at this point, I was kind of dis disenfranchised by the whole photography landscape I was like I'm never going to make it doing what I want I might as well have one big blowout you know doing what doing the thing I love most and uh and I came back from that work and and it got kind of minor success and then one of the lecturers had told me the best piece of advice and it's something when I speak to students now I always encourage is never leave university with a finished project right because I was kind of going showing him going oh it's done it's finished and he was like, you don't want it to be finished. Mm. Because why? Because because if you've still got work to do on it, that will kind of carry you over into your next kind of phase. In other words, if you if you leave college and you've then got the pressure of finding a new project, it's almost like... It's too much. Too much. Yeah. I mean, uh, brutally honest, the first two years of when I left university were the hardest mm. in terms of finding my place when I don't have a support network. It's one of the reasons I moved to Brighton. Um, and, and and then building that self-discipline of going, I need to put money aside if I want to do this thing, which is n potentially never going to give me any payback in mm. the future. I'm doing it for myself. Um, and when I made that decision that actually, yeah, it's not finished. I'm not 100% happy with it. I'm going to go move to Brighton and get an office job for two years to, to fund 
to continue the to continue the work. So at that point, how many trips had you made when you thought well, maybe it was finished? Then one one trip. That's okay. how, I mean, that's how naive I was in because I was just like, well, this is my final year project. I was thinking yeah. of of you know not pursuing photography because it was it seemed impossible. And you weren't necessarily thinking of it as a as an extended project, you know, with with enough material to make a book out of it. You just thought, well, this is you know, I've got something as a kind of college project. Yeah, and interestingly, when I decided. It wasn't finished. A bunch of things happened at the same time. I got featured in the BJP as a graduate pro on one of their graduate profile things, of which then Jim Stevenson from MiniClick here in Brighton saw and then invited me down to Brighton to do a talk. So I was like, oh, wow, like I'm at uni. People already know my works. This is great. So I then caught a bus to, to Brighton and found a job and a place to live and then I've set at base here because I was like well this is the community which I'm looking for you know I've never been a big fan of London mm. and you, so yeah you were saying you did that all in that all happened in the space of a day right <laughs> getting uh, a job one day place to live are you quite decisive in those kind of situations it's the same with my work I it's it's the happiest oh, is the word happens happenstance yeah like the 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 way that sometimes the universe just aligns and, 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 and you just, that happens, that happens, and that happens. In hindsight, it looks amazing. And it's what I look for in my work, those kind of being yeah. in the right place at the right time. Yeah, serendipity is the other well, that's way the of, word I was looking. The other way to describe it. But yeah, I was going to ask you about that kind of thing because it does seem to be something that sort of carries through into your work. And you, you kind of go with the flow, I think, to a certain extent. You don't, you don't plan a great deal. When you went, well, before we get into that, we should, we should, back up and and maybe you can explain what the um, project that became a pink flamingo was about and how how it came you know in, in into your head so um I, I mean i used to play this video game called the oregon trail which was this educational thing that came out of america which is basically you had a family and you had to get them from missouri to oregon and and it, it became a kind of a cult game and I was, I remember being a teenager laughing at, you know, one of the, you know, your family would die along the way and you have to do, you know, one of the famous ways one of them died was dysentery and we all found that very funny. And and when I was thinking like, oh, I really want to do something in America, I'd never properly been and, and you know, I've never really been outside of Europe. So I was like, this would be amazing opportunities to, to explore the place. That whole kind of Jack Kerouac, you know, Alex, so that, that. Joel Sternfeld idea of just traveling around America and photographing, but also just experiencing these little stories, even if they're just personal to you, it's something which I wanted. Mm. So I was thinking, well, what, what do I know about America? I don't know anything, really. And I remembered back to that Oregon Trail game, which I thought was hilarious. And I started actually thinking, well, what is the Oregon Trail? Why? What was the purpose of that game? Because I wasn't playing it to learn anything. I was playing it just because it, yeah, yeah. it was a game. And so I started researching about the Oregon Trail and I was like, oh, wow, so this is a really historic, important financial route which the fur traders took to get from Missouri to Oregon in hopes of finding land or better prosperity or the gold rush is, is really what it was about. So I was thinking to this idea of, and it, it's become more obvious, the more work I make and the more I look back, it's seems to be the thing that the connecting theme is how the history of a place can affect the present day without us even knowing so what happened in along the Oregon Trail like why it's there it affects people that take that route but they don't know why it's do you know what I mean mm. that, that always fascinates me this kind of the vibration of history through the present day so I was looking at the Oregon Trail as almost a metaphor for people traveling to get to the grass is greener kind of thing. Yeah. And then I started looking up uh, housing statistics. Like who lives along the Oregon Trail? I had this idea of trying to find the original ancestors and photographing them along the trail. And I realized one of the biggest poverty lines in America is along this route. And I thought, well, that's fucking fascinating. Like, hmm. like they're called flyover states, but like this really important financial route it's 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 desolate on either side of it the entire kind of width of america so i was like i'm going to photograph them this idea of the housing collapse because it was during the recession that well we're still in it but hmm. it's 2000 and 
2012 uh, I started it. So it was a couple of years after the crash. Mm. But there were these kind of model homes, these beautiful model homes that, like, ghost towns. They're like, I almost saw them as, like, the modern-day equivalent of what you'd expect to see in the Wild West, but mm. ghost towns. And so the project became about that. Right. And the title is a reference to the American flag, of all things. Mm. This idea that when America landed on the moon, they put the flag on the moon. It was this kind of, we're here, this is our land kind of mm. ownership. And I thought, what's the domestic version of the American flag? And it was this kind of Americana pulp pop thing of the, a pink flamingo in the lawn, kind of like, this is my front garden. Yeah. We've got a, like a fucking flamingo in it. Like, yeah. And it was that kind of metaphorical language which I was exploring during that project. How did things develop uh, and change as you went along? Um, from you know your original ideas, or did you just let those kind of things kind of emerge as you as you once you'd started it? Um, originally, it was the fascination was always just the route. Mm. That was this idea that I'd love to retrace the route. That was it. That was the core. Right, idea. and you had this, but you also had this notion of this kind of you know the, the economic uh, situation well, in the back to, of your I head. I almost wanted to replicate the pioneers in a way. Mm. This idea of like. I want to find prosperity. I want to find a better life. And maybe if I do the Oregon Trail, I'll find it, kind of. Yeah, the American dream and all that. Yeah, that's a term which I, I try to avoid when just because it, I think it's so overused and I think it's a bit more of a British cliche of America. Hmm. But it is. It's kind of the collapse of the American dream. Um, but then I think the project really started developing when I just let go of those... I, st I stopped biasing myself with what I wanted it to be. Mm. And then I just photographed purely as a reflection of what I was feeling that day. And because I, I could only take a certain amount of photos a day, I was just kind of like, this is worthy of a mm. photo or this, this and this. And weirdly, it almost became a like a conversation with my subconscious. Like when I got back to the UK and I was looking at the, the pictures, I was like, oh, okay, I can see... I could almost see what my subconscious was trying to say. Right. It's this. It's a really weird um, way of explaining it. And uh, but it is. It's just sometimes I don't know why I want to photograph something, and then I get back and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Mm. Metaphorically, yeah, so you're kind of letting your instincts take over in a way, your subconscious mind. What, what's your kind of internal narrative like in those in those kind of situations when oh, you're shooting? Though, are you? I hate myself. Beating the shit out of yourself. Yeah, I'm. I'm awful. Like, what am I doing? Mm. I, when I was doing uh, a pink flamingo, I was a smoke. I was smoking still, and I was on sixty a day. Oh my god! When I was in the states, just because I was driving up to 12 hours a day so I'd smoke every 15 minutes to and you were completely up. on your own completely sleeping in the car kind of mm. the, the dream um, but I was so I was looking back very hard on myself yeah very like if I had for example if I didn't leave wherever I was parked or if I was in the motel if I didn't leave there by 7 in the morning mm. I would be livid with myself right and it would have a negative effect on me the entire like those kind of or like, I can't believe I didn't ask that person who I've just driven past if I could photo right, right. these kind of things. And it was kind of... It's very familiar. Are you, have you learned to be less so now? Mm. No. I do it in different ways now. Mm. In, I've channeled my inner hate towards uh, all the energy I had to, 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 to being so self-critical, to, to research. Right. I feel that that takes... Yeah. I just... So with my most recent work, which I guess we'll come to in a bit, Yeah. it's... I'm I'm drowning in research, right? And I think that's really distracting me from kind of yeah. that self hatred you feel as a kind of an insecure. Because I mean, that's what photography is. It kind right? of it gives you a kind of anchor in a way. It kind of gr grounds you and sure. ma makes you more mi mindful. You're forced to be more mindful because you have to concentrate on on the actual facts of what you're trying to find out about, rather than let your head, you know, go go crazy. Well, <laughs> the the interesting thing about my current work is it's the first time. Since university, I've had a deadline mm. because of the book. And so that's the thing which I'm battling with at the moment is trying to be, trying to channel that kind of your, your creative juices in such a small time frame now because mm. the book's coming out in September and I'm still shooting it now. Right. Okay. And it's kind of, 
in a weird way, the reason I think I'm doing research is because I'm, I'm, I don't have time to be self-critical. I need to put that energy into something. Yeah. Yeah, so it's forced you to focus to some extent to have an external uh, deadline set for you. But with the um, America stuff, it, again, did you did you spend much time um, doing the historical research of the period that you were kind of referring back to, or you just weren't so, so interested in 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 the past in that sense? Loosely, I was. In comparison to what I'm, I mean, it's a bit chalk and cheese because with now I'm working on a crime case. Mm. The facts are very important. Whereas, yeah, and we're going to get into it, and we're going to um, explain what it's all about <laughs> at some point. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit true. Detective meets but, Brighton. Yeah, and, no, it's a fascinating story. I could uh, we could probably I could talk for the majority of the interview f- on just that, but I just wanted to kind of get the the pink flamingo period of your um, practice done and dusted first, I guess. Um, and but, you, but I mean, yeah, go on. So, so talking about researching Oregon Trail. Um, I did. I mean, very loosely in, in the sense that almost back then I didn't want to bias myself. I think, I, you know, this idea of I'm, I'm going to find out what Wyoming looks like. I'm going to find out what Nebraska looks like and the relevance that I think I'd go out and I'd photograph, you know, everything that looked old if I knew too much. You know, I knew, I knew what the Oregon Trail was, the basic ideas, the metaphorical language behind it and what it represented. And that's what I was trying to photograph as opposed to now I am trying to actually photograph history. Yeah. So that's, I think, the slight difference between the two. But I mean, yeah, for me, it was also a great exercise of just having, like, how on earth do I photograph anything and make it about one thing? Well, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Because like you say, it was, you know, it's a slightly more conceptual um, area that you're working in at that point. And um, you've got to figure out how to, well, first of all, how to deal with the past but in the present, and that applies to to both stories, also the 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 current story, which you've referred to, which we'll get onto. But um, you you use your big um ten eight camera. How how did using that impact the project, your approach to it, or or what you actually chose to shoot? I guess in terms of Pink Flamingo, it was it was just a nice little nod to history. This mm. idea of you know Timothy O'Sullivan traveling across America, photographing you know, with a horse and a darkroom carriage and photographing America, that kind of reference. Um, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sporadic and I'm quite scatty when it comes to photographing anyway. I'm, I kind of, I'm a bit of this, bit of that, bit of everything. But shooting on those kind of cameras, it just slows you down. Yeah, and I guess you're forced to pick and choose your subject. I mean, if once you set the thing up and you kind of point it at something. Oh no, it's really easy to fake it. That's the beautiful thing. It's, yeah, that really has to be a picture at that point, right? You can't no, just... no. I've, there's been a couple of times I was like, "Oh, this sucks," but there's, I'm photographing a person, so I'll just All right pretend I've taken it. Yeah, because you can't see anything. Yeah, uh, well, what kind of characters? Are there anyone who's stuck in your mind, or any stories that kind of stuck in your mind from that project? Yeah, there's loads. But the, I mean, I said it earlier about this kind of the Jack Kerouac stories and the kind of mm. how they're his almost. And I almost don't like saying them because it's... But Pink Flamingo is was my representation of it. But those stories, I've, I think, is the most beautiful thing about photography. It was, it gave me a chance to to, to meet people and to experience things. And I, I kind of almost don't want to share them because I'm quite precious about those memories. In yeah, way yeah. Way. You want to so, keep them for yourself. Yeah, quite selfishly. No, that's fair I enough. mean, I'll, I'll give you a quick anecdotal one, if that... Yeah, please I, do. I picked up a hitchhiker in Idaho, and uh, and I, I, I drove him to to Oregon. And on my first trip, going back, I photographed... I knocked on this door that I wanted to... Photo, the house I wanted to photograph on. So I knocked on the door, and this very tired-looking young lady opened the door and was like, what? And I was like, can I photograph your house? She was like, yeah, I don't care. Slam the door. So I crossed the road and I set up the camera and I'm t- just about to take it and then all of a sudden the door swings open and this huge, huge guy with a massive beard goes, what the are you doing? So I just instantly go into like, do you want a cigarette mode? Kind of, let's have a chat. And then he was the most lovely guy, but the reason he was freaking out is because I was photographing a drug farm and I had no idea. Idea. So, but he was like, oh, that's really cool. So anyway, on my next trip, when I had the hitchhiker in my car, I thought, ah, oh, I'm about to drive past this guy's house. He really likes me. I'm going to I'm gonna pop in with a hitchhiker. Let's see what happens. So I did. And then me and the hitchhiker ended up cutting up marijuana for 
couple of days <laughs> and then the hitchhiker left but it was just this really kind of those kind of moments i i, I really cherish and it yeah i didn't photograph it because it was like it was just a, a very unique and amazing situation but that was one of the that was one of the highlights is mm. and i guess it's the same with my photography is is i take things out of context and i put them in a new context and in a physical way I took a hitchhiker and yeah. put him in a drug farm just, him in. just to see, see what, what would happen. happen. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. It was, it was, and everyone got on. It was great, thankfully. Yeah. But um, you took a chance in a way. You kind of uh, deliberately um, created a slightly um, kind of tense or potentially tense dynamic there. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I'm very good friends with that family. Okay. Now. Are you, I mean, you're obviously quite. Yeah, you've you've developed your photographic social skills, as it were, to some extent, because you're you know this is part of the challenge that everyone has. You've got to approach strangers and ask them if you all if they'll um, stand around and let you photograph them. Mm. Um, but I think you you that came came quite late to you. Were you quite shy? I was shy. I mean, I used to. The thing that I think helped when I was in nightclubs talking about photography. I, mm. I, I was a nightclub photographer at some point. Yeah, for you know only a couple of months, but selling, you know, photos of people back to because so I basically had to take a photo of a, a group of pissed people, and then sell them a laminated version of it for three pound. Right, and I was on. I wouldn't get paid unless I sold over forty. So I had to very, very, very quickly just be like, Yeah, you had to learn that how to do that. And it was the it was the best. Like looking back, it was the most perfect training I could have had. Is having a camera approaching people and then. Except for the only difference now is I'm I'm I mean I I I never go up to people and I'm like can I take your picture? I always talk to them, and I don't mention that I'm a photographer. But I talk to them about, for example, in America, I talk to them about, do you know anything about the Oregon Trail? Blah 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 blah. And then it would be, I'm a photographer. Would you mind if I take your portrait? Mm. I think that's the smart way of doing it. I think it's a bit unethical when people don't know what they're letting themselves in for. Mm. Yeah. Especially when you're working on what could be seen as potentially sensitive subject matter. Not that Pink Flamingo is, but I'm photographing a housing crisis along the trail mm. and I'm photographing a lot of people that live in motels and stuff like that. So I think it's important that they're aware. Mm. What's it like? How do they react to the big camera? Because I've never, you know, really worked with one. I can imagine... Um, you know, in in some ways it makes it easier because, you know, you, you're going to stand there with a contraption that kind of size. It's not like there's any there's any question of you being surreptitious about anything. You know what I mean? It's like, can you stand there in front of this enormous thing? Amazingly, I think it's photographers that give more shit about what camera I use than than the people I'm photographing. They 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 they're just sure, but I'm I'm just of course in in some respects that no one cares. But but it's not very usual to see a guy using a ten by eight you know plate camera whereas if you're, yeah. if you've got a dslr then then you just like you know you could be any nutter i mean uh, you'd have to ask them I, i've only ever really used that in the states and 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 now iceland so i, I wouldn't know and I've, I've never had i mean talking of being taken being photographed by strangers i every time i i'm walking down oxford street i'm petrified of being in matt stewart's <laughs> latest you know, it's a real, it's a, it's a real. There's quite a good chance you would be if, if you walk down Oxford Street at any given moment, really. It's... But no, it's one of those, not just Matt, but I mean, any street photographer, because I, I, I really don't like the idea of being taken out of context, which is a really interesting thing um, when I do it to other people, I take them out of context. And hmm. so it's a bit hypocritical, but it's always this, maybe the thing I have an issue with is being unknowingly taken out of context. Yeah. That's it. I love Matt's work, but it's just I always have this kind of back of my head, like look, looking mm. for a black Leica somewhere. Like he's here, kind of. But it, yeah. Uh, tell me about the scratch cards. You got, you got, um, yeah. You developed a sort of um, routine, as it were, in in a way. But that also, it wasn't. It was, it was something that actually became, you know, in a way relevant to the to the themes of your project. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's kind of going with the idea of what I did with the hitchhiker and the drug farm, it was this idea of like, well, why, you know, let's do something a bit different. And, and I wanted to kind of recreate that idea of chance that I guess people experience when they were doing the Oregon trail. And also it being scratch cards has a link to it being financial. But what I do is I'd buy a $1 scratch card every day. And if I won 
anything. If it was $1 or 40 I would sleep in a motel that night. I didn't have enough money to sleep in a motel every night. but And it, it kind of became this kind of weird game, but it kind of, that idea of chat, it's almost like that, you know, the dice game, mm. like living your life by the dice. Yeah. That's kind of what photography is. It's that element of you may do something great today or you may not tomorrow or, you know, and I don't really, I don't, I use... I used the sat nav when I was lost, but I typically just get lost. And it was the beauty of of, of things being taken out of your control. Mm. I'm a bit of a control freak. So for, for my creative process, it, it was wonderful. Kind of like, oh, well, it looks like this is the third day in a row. I'm not in a motel. And mm. Are there any examples you can kind of give of, of ways in which, you know, serendipity um, played its role, as it were, either in, in the States or, we, or even with your current project, which is in Iceland? There, there is a few. I mean, the Iceland work—it's—it's it's riddled with weird coincidences and mm. and these chance things happening. Um, I guess the the most obvious one is I mentioned the police officer that was involved in the case. Yeah. Okay. So, tell us about that project then. Um, this is the one you're you're currently shooting, and um, it's called um, Sugar Paper Theories. Uh, how did it come about in the first place? So um, I was very fortunate enough to get shortlisted for the Ideas Tap Magnum uh, Award, I think in 2014. And when you're shortlisted, you're meant to write a proposal of something you want to do. And if they like your proposal, I think there's eight shortlists, no, six, and then they whittled it down to three. And then they give you a bit of money to do that work. Your dream project. Um, and I've always wanted to do something in Iceland, but I've always wanted to do something with storytelling. It's one of the things which I learned coming back from Pink Flamingo was while it does make sense to me and perhaps sometimes when I talk about it in front of people, they can kind of see where I'm going. The idea of narrative is lost on most people. And Iceland is so rich in, you know, storytelling in general, it's like a nation built on 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 these children's stories. So I thought, oh well, that's a great place to start. And then someone had pointed me to this case, and when I started looking deeper into this case, it was it, it mirrored exactly what I wanted to do. It's a it's a basically a a, a true crime case that happened in the seventies where two people went missing, and six innocent people were told day in, day out, that they were the ones that did it and that their memories kind of were replaced by these fictional ones that the police had told them. So here's this idea of memory being like photography mm. but also narrative of of being told something so much that you take it for fact, which is, I believe, the the most beautiful thing about photography is how it's, it's ability to tell you truth and fiction simultaneously in equal measures. So mm. I for me, it was just like, oh, wow, I've got to do this. Something about this case. You know, here's a, a true crime case that almost reflects photography mm. in a weird way. And so I ended up getting shortlisted, so they gave me some money. And then Vice got in touch. To, and then they wanted to do a documentary following me for the first couple of days, which was sponsored by Nikon. Mm. And so that paid also. And then... So that funded my first trip. Right, okay. So that's why you were shooting with a DSLR, which is obviously not your usual modus operandi at all. Yeah, you probably felt a bit out of your wheelhouse with using a, a, a dig digital camera. It's so, so far away from what you're used to. No, I mean, for my commercial work, I always use digital. Okay. This, this is the... the I, I kind of have this conversation with my housemate all the time in terms of what you see on my website is what I want people to know me for. Right. I don't shout about when I do commissions or when I do commercial jobs. Right. Just and in fact, you do quite a lot of editorial commissions as yeah. well. So I presume you just, you know, in those situations... I just don't share them. The unfortunate truth is, is as a photographer that shoots on a redundant format in far-flung areas of the world, I, you know, I need to finance it somehow. And at that time, I'd already maxed out a credit card. Yeah. And it was, and it was just one of those things that if I hadn't done it, the work wouldn't have been done. And then what happened is I ended up winning... The ideas type thing, which was a, a, an amazing surprise, and and um, that then went into paying for Pink Flamingo to get printed, mm. 
and then the, the sales of that book have then funded. It's all, for the first time ever, the projects are funding each other. So my last trip in December to Iceland was paid for purely by people buying prints or buying the book. Okay. And and that was the most liberating kind of feeling. And I'm off again in April. So, mm. so you know, you had to you had to set about trying to do something quite difficult. Really, it was not only we uh, trying to photograph something fairly intangible, but you're also trying to photograph something which is a reference to the past again. Um, and again, you know, you you didn't plan too much. Did you just go out there and and then see what kind of came up, as it were? This weirdly is the complete opposite of a pink flamingo. I was, in a weird way, really anchored to a couple of key locations, mm. and it would have been very easy. And I think a bit of a photographic cliche just to go to the same places and photograph how they were seen before and then present them. So what I, the I, I referenced this idea of of being told a false story like the police did. So with with my pictures. There are photos which are completely irrelevant to the case, right? And and the idea with the book, when it comes out, is you'll be looking through it almost as if you're the seventh person that was arrested, and you're being told this fictional or truthful story, and and it, in 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 broadest broader ideas of it is it's questioning photography's ability to mm. to truthfully tell you what happens, but also someone that's acutely aware of you know, giving you bits of truth or giving you bits of fact. I've kind of put myself in the position of the police. And that's nice. It's very neat because it also means that uh, you give yourself the permission to therefore just include random images. Oh, it's, all, it's all a con. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, that's it's that's your prerogative, right? Yeah. And uh, it's part of, part of the way that you've pulled the whole thing together. Um, yeah. And you're playing with these, this, this, like you say, you know, something which photography is very much about this kind of, um, d- division or perhaps false division between fact and fit- uh, fiction. So some of the people who were the accused, th- these people actually did go to prison, serve long sentences, and um, officially they they've never been exonerated. No. So officially they di- they are still guilty. Yeah. But you're saying it's it's unquestionable that, that they were yeah. innocent. They're com- yeah, they're. Com- I mean, the nation knows it, the press knows it, the government know it, but. To admit that they weren't guilty at this point would mean reopening the whole case. Mm. And on the 28th of January this year, the, they all went to a committee to request for the case to be reopened. And that looks like it's going to be happening very shortly. Wow. So you kind of accidentally got a, quite a topical uh, side to the whole thing because it's not it's not just uh, something that happened in the dim and distant past. It's still, it's still an active... Yeah, it's, it's happening now, and and the amazing thing is, it's the first time, you know, my my project focuses on these six people. Sadly, two of them have passed away, but through through their next of kin and the other four people, I'm working with them in terms of telling this story in 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 the most accurate way I can, mm. as in, in the actual story. And then, but the thing is, is the photographs are the things that are the deceiving. In, in an interesting way, but it's 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 really amazing. Um, mm. You seem you seem quite excited about this project. Um, can you kind of pin down why that is? <laughs> because there's a book coming out in September. I have to be. Um, yeah. No, no. But I mean, I guess I think the, I think the, the real reason is I'm interested about it is because it's the closest to Tim's work mm. in terms of actually doing something that's slightly documentary. Yeah, that's affecting real people that I've ever done, and it's kind of I'm almost leaning more towards now a kind of a, a documentary kind of journalist, if mm. anything. Mm. I was wondering if whether it might be also partly because you also collaborate. You know, you're collaborating. You you've got a writer, and obviously you're collaborating with a book designer. Mm. And I thought maybe that process was something that you know was new new to you. And yeah, I mean that, that also. That I mean, it's it's. I mentioned it earlier, I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to, to my work. Um, and it's it's being a bit of a lesson, it, it is a bit of a lesson at the moment in terms of releasing some responsibilities to other people. But it's kind of what you get back is mm. 10 times more. The trick is, is to find the right people to, to collaborate with. Um, and I've just been so fortunate. Like everybody that's kind of picked up the project has taken it and run with it. 
Yeah. But there is a kind of, <coughs> in a weird way, I almost don't feel like a photographer with this work. I feel kind of like it's it's, it's a bit more art directiony mm. than it is a pink flamingo because I'm working with lots of different people. But it's kind of ultimately it's my vision. But it's kind of I mention things to them and they go, "Oh no, what about this?" And it's, mm. "Oh wow, that's even better." You've also found some. Uh, images that you've kind of you're going to incorporate, which you didn't take. They were taken at the at the time that this that this uh, incident occurred. So yeah, in that I'm, respect, you're kind of um, what's the word curating? Yeah, I'm weirdly enough. I've always been against people that find archives and then call themselves a curator. Again, being a hypocrite. But the the, the thing is with the archive I'm working for is it's it's the police's archive of the photos they took while they were doing their investigation. Um, and I make no kind of false claims that they're mine or anything like that, but it's kind of one of those things that just adds... Yeah, another dimension. Think, yeah, completely. And it's so multivocal. This, I mean, the, the case is so complex, and I'm, I'm having some really fine ways of dumbing it down because otherwise this, this podcast would last like five hours in terms of all of the nooks and crannies. of the, It's so kind of... It spans years. Mm. Um, and But working with like the archive and, 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 and the writer and the designer, it's all kind of encapsulated into one one book in September, which is, it's mm. as it's coming on now, It's I'm very proud of it. Yeah, and, and you won the Barter Award um, for this work, as it were, which is a decent chunk of money. It's 20,000 quid. Um, so how has how is having that funding kind of impacted the project, as it were? Just the fact that it's allowed you to continue I'll, or i don't or, get any of that 20 that twenty thousand is just for the book okay so basically with that's not for you to shoot the project no it's to fund the actual production of the book oh, okay fine which is which is i think one of the reasons as i mentioned earlier about a deadline is that i'm having to very quickly get these creative juices flowing because the work wasn't finished when i want it and i need to i've got one more trip when i've got all of the pictures planned and the meetings planned so that's fine so that's coming up in april mm. but that that money is purely for the design of the book the prints and you know all of okay. those so at least you don't have you don't have the end the, basically the, the end pressure of, of doing a kickstarter campaign or any of that stuff which yeah. i know you're actually quite critical of or you're 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 slightly impatient with that idea why is that um I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the more we rely on each other as practitioners to pay the way, the less argument we have culturally to say that the arts needs funding. Mm. That I mean, that's for, that's my core belief is that our argument that arts council funding is getting cut to shreds is becoming more redundant the more that we are paying for each other to do. Yeah, I guess. Do you know what I mean? And it's it. I I I really am a firm believer that it's on the it's the responsibility of people in power to keep Britain culturally engaged. Mm. And you know it is to a degree, but you look at what's happening up in Bradford, bringing all those negatives down to London. It's just becoming this one cultural hub in London, and all of these different voices all around of these small communities are losing their voice and I can't help but feel that it's a lot of it is because everyone's doing their Kickstarter campaigns and mm. it's like hey you know I can't afford to do a book give us 20 quid yeah I mean I guess the other way to look at it is really just a way of it's really just a way of taking orders before the book's actually produced. Mm. Or just, I think you did something similar for uh, A Pink Flamingo anyway you pre-sold I did pre-orders yeah. a number of pre-orders but so is there any is there any real difference in that respect? Um, uh, is it not basically the same thing? Perhaps it is, but I I just feel with with my pre-orders at least it was it was just it was just you buy the book. Yeah, it it wasn't. You, it already existed. Or yeah, it was, it, it's not you buy the book and then maybe it doesn't turn out. You know, you just bought the book. Mm. Whereas the thing is with with Kickstarter, this idea of buying books or, or, you know, donating a pound to get a tweet, you know. And I have to say, a lot of my friends do use Kickstarter. But I just, for me at least, like a Pink Flamingo was paid for by the money I won from 
the idea idea step thing and then the rest of it was done through myself yeah and it's kind of this idea of asking other photographers for many i I have this huge issue about photographers are in in our climate other people that are always the ones paying as opposed to the other way around yeah so I guess that's where it stems from. Mm. And for for a pink flamingo, you kind of set up your own imprint, as it were. You you put it, you published it under your your own little, um, I think it's dive bar. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what, you know, what was your thinking behind doing that? So, I mean, I live with a photographer also, um, and me and him are a big fan of books. We're sat mm. in the shadow of one of my bookshelves now, and it's this idea of kind of, you know, I. Before the bottle, I didn't have any money to go through professional needs or, or stuff like that. And a lot of my friends in Brighton are designers. So I worked with an amazing designer called Emily, who's part of Stanley James Press, who's currently doing Alma Hass's Kickstarter, which you should check out. Mm. Um, and it was kind of this, for me, it was just, well, I'm going to put it out myself. Me and Sam, my housemate, have just started a printing company. And I was like, well, why don't we do books as well? Mm. So we were like, okay. That's fine. So we just called it, you know, published by Dive Bar. But it's basically this imprint, in-house printing company we did, we run. Yeah. Um, and we kind of choose what books we want to publish. So the next we're working on is Sam's. And then after that, we'll be kind of investigating more. Kind of works in a similar way, I guess, to pieces like Brown Owl Press mm. or, you know, we don't take submissions, but we kind of work with people we know or people we like, and we're kind of like, well, what do you feel about putting it together as a book? Yeah. It's kind of like that. And will there be any, any genuine prospect of income from doing that, or are you more or less doing it for... When, when, when it comes to publishing other people's work, I mean? No, there's no there's no income at all. I mean, And you're I, also doing I mean, prints. I'm in an interesting situation with a Pink Flamingo where I'm basically slowly winning the money I won in from the ideas that thing back every time I sell a book. Yeah. So I, I'm not necessarily out of pocket. So it's kind of now paying, helping pay my way a little bit. Um, but yeah, we offer printing as well, which is the main thing we kind of deal with. Mm. Um, so yeah, we print inkjet prints for photographers. And being in Brighton and being part of MiniClick, I'm quite fortunate enough of getting to meet so many mm. fellow photographers and the thing that, that constantly gets echoed is just, oh, I'd love to print big, but I just can't afford it. And yeah. This was our solution to that. So Yeah, and that really came from from your desire to really, to, to you know, minimise your own printing costs rather than yeah. initially to doing it for other people. It, uh, it's half of the battle. People always talk about how much you earn, you know, being a photographer, but it's also equally how much you can not save. Yeah. yeah. And so finding smart solutions to... Saving money has gone a very, very long way. Mm. Um, and what we do with dive bar is and we have two of the best paper stocks available. Um, and we charge cost plus a little bit extra just for our time. And that's not, you know, the only reason we do that is, it, it, one, it makes it accessible to everybody. What we, that's the prices me and Sam pay when we, when we use it. But it's also kind of it pays it pays for itself at that point, and it yeah. just becomes this kind of almost like a community resource. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, you're also kind of quite aware of um, the need to have multiple income streams, as it were. I think you've kind of talked about that before. When when did that? When did the importance of that kind of first uh, strike you? Did 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 they did they uh, when you were at Newport, did they talk much about the kind of business side of things, about the kind of, uh, you know, earning a living side of things? No. Um, I, I'm a believer that the second you get a job in, in an institution, it instantly you are unable to talk about professional practice because that is your professional practice is you get a salary. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess unless you're still doing both. Well, I mean, I was taught by Ken Grant and Paul Reese, you know, who are like amazing, amazing photographers. But their practice, you know, they're full time in education, so whatever they teach you is, you know, right. they may do the odd job here and there, but it's kind of yeah, they're, te- they're quite likely out of touch with the realities yeah, of the marketplace. And, but to answer your question, when when it dawned on me, it was the day I left my full time job when I moved to Brighton, like the day I was like, oh Jesus, like how am I gonna, yeah. And I was speaking to a photographer not long ago and he was saying, 
how you need an octopus career. Hmm. Kind of a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. And, it, and it, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that I make all of my living off photography. I don't at all. Hmm. Far from it. So I do a lot of assisting. Right. Dive bar does pay a considerable amount. I do some web design. You know, lots of little... Okay, right. Yeah. So you've got a different, yeah, a portfolio or lifestyle as they used to yeah, call it. Yeah, portfolio career. Yeah. Um, what have you, what photo books have you bought um, recently? Is there anything um, that comes to mind? Um, not recently, but I feel, I feel because I have the floor and I've yeah. just slagged off Kickstarter. I'm going to tell you guys to talk about Kickstarter, to go to a Kickstarter. Okay. But I I was lucky enough to be one of the original ten that bought Alma Hass's book, the the first one, which is the um, the pop up right version, which looks amazing. Have a look. It's called Cosmic Surgery. It's it's by far my favourite photo book. Is it really? It's it's the first thing I reach for when showing people, and but the reason is is you know. As a as a they're they're pretty pictures, but I mean as as it functions as a book, mm. it's served such an import not important but such an incredible purpose. It's um yeah. So and but you, she's now currently trying to fund the, the next book. Is that right? On Kickstarter, yeah. Okay, on Kickstarter. <laughs> right. But you know, it's one of those things like people have different things about. That was my version. That was my contribution to Kickstarter. Is I bought the original one, but it's you know Alma, Alma's work is 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 amazing. But that in terms of books i bought recently i bought that last year so Mm. i haven't bought books i've I've been saving so yeah of course well you've been also concentrating on your own (laughs) yeah which is which is terrifying but it's um yeah photo books are uh are are amazing you know tools of getting work out there and you know having your work in a book is 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 quite a joy but seeing it done in such an intelligent and smart way is is that's one you know that's a photo book that's what yeah. a photo book should should do. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned Mini Click a couple of times, which is something you have here in Brighton. Tell me about Mini Click. What is it? Um, so Mini Click is it was it was founded by Jim Stevenson um, a couple of years ago, and then worked in partnership with uh, Lou Miller, and it's basically an events series here in Brighton, and we basically every month put on free photography talks. Uh, events and, and, and kind of workshops, and it's and the idea is just making it as accessible to people as possible. Kind of going back to when I didn't know anything about Martin Parr, mm. you know, in Cardiff at least, f- photography apart from the photo gallery, what well, there there wasn't much in terms of being able to digest this stuff. So it's basically if you can imagine the the most fun visiting lecture series in any institution, and it's free. Um, that's what we do, and we do events all over the UK. We do festivals, and we do and we do not, uh, bits and bobs. I started out by doing a talk at MiniClick, and me and Jim hit it on like my house on fire. Mm. I found a mutual love for Northern Soul and and shoes. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and 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 yeah. So then he very kindly asked me to to be a part of it, and it's it's something which I'm very passionate about. You might have when I talk about dive bar, but it's Hmm. This idea of making things as accessible to people as possible, and uh, truthfully, as photographers, we don't have a lot of money. Hmm. Um, you know, whenever you see someone that appears they do, I can guarantee you that they don't, or they're from money. Yeah. And so, but creating these kind of community cultural outreach things like Mini Click, hmm. I, I, I feel is the most important thing. Yeah. I do, and uh, you know, none of us make any money from it. Right. And it's completely. Just you know, it's all of our free time, but it's the one thing, maybe only seconded by my own work that I'm most proud of is mm. is MiniClick because it's just it's offered me an opportunity, at least to speak candidly and quite selfishly, an opportunity to meet people I'd never meet in, in terms of the industry. But it's also every month I get to listen to a different person explain a story, and yeah. one of the kind of the ethos behind it is that we don't talk about cameras or kit. Mm. We're very anti uh, cameras or kit. We're yeah. just about stories and ideas, mm. Mm. and I think people really respond well to that. And like, we need these things, mm. you know, in in a in a world where, 
like it's becoming more and more difficult to be self-sufficient be a, being a photographer and you are becoming more and more isolated because of whatever situation these kind of community communities that are popping up about something which i think if you're listening to this podcast yeah it's just i assume that you're passionate about photography yeah like they do so well i can only speak for myself but they've done so much for me in terms of my ideas they've made me appreciate a much broader scope of photography than i'd ever normally right experience and that's just because the, the work is so diverse and and it's got me out of my own head so many times it's amazing yeah cool all right well yeah thanks again jack um appreciate chatting and uh, yeah so your book the new one's going to be out the end um towards the end of this year in september so that's something to look forward to you've you've still got to do a bit of work on it so it probably feels like you're under the cosh a bit and pink flamingo is still available um at i think 30 quid which sounds like a bargain jacklatham.com jacklatham.com all right thanks jack <laughs> cheers. cheers mate